Let me welcome you to our uh, second part in our uh, ADR series here on Chita 97.9, a program that is heard each and every Monday and Tuesday at this time. And we are uh, featuring part two of the interview with Ernie Tannis and Scott Ruddick. And we're not going to waste any time. We're going to turn it over to Ernie and his guest right now. Welcome back to Alternative Dispute Resolution, show number 167. Yesterday, April 7th, we're in conversation with Scott Ruddick the um, program manager of Mennonite Economic Development Associates, MEDA.org. And Scott's on the phone with us again here on Tuesday. Welcome back, Scott. Thank you for having me back. Glad to be here. And the coincidence was that yesterday, as Gary Michaels pointed out, I don't know if you heard of him, yesterday apparently was Scottish Day. So <laughs> I, w- I was not aware of that. That's uh, interesting. <laughs> well, you know, the idea of um, how we ended up about um, uh, the quote you gave uh, from the Winnipeg office of the Canadian um, uh, Food Grain Bank um, mm-hmm. about uh, where there's, there's, there's hunger, uh, there'll be no peace, basically. And I learned, I heard that in the Middle East. I've heard that in Aquasasne. And I mentioned what the chief said uh, in talking about they're setting up their mediation program. You can't do ADR on an empty stomach. And I, uh, I was uh, talking to people about doing something on microfinance and how that applies to culture. And I'm wondering if today we can build on that notion and maybe to talk a little bit more about the Stella Ting to me, T-I-N-G-T-O-O-M-E-Y, and that framework. And you would talk to begin in, in economics, uh, Armatia Sayen, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner, how culture drives behavior and how that affects the economics. So I'm going to let you flow from there. And then while you're on your roll, um, unless you need me to come back in, I want you to lead that into how you ended up with Mida and what that organization does. All right. Well, that's, that's a great introduction. And, and I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll talk first about the, the lead-in to Mita, because I think the work that Mita does leads into quite well what we're, go- we're going to be discussing today, um, if, if you're okay with that. That's fine. And uh, so I, I've been with Mita a fairly short time, although I did have an opportunity to uh, work with Mita when I was a consultant on a number of projects. And as we talked about yesterday, but I'll uh, talk a little bit more about today, is that MEDA has been around since 1953 and has been involved and is uh, currently working in a number of different locations, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Middle East, working in Latin and South America, as well as working in, in the southern United States on uh, rebuilding efforts from uh, the uh, effects of the, of the hurricanes. And MEDA's mandate is to take business practices and apply them to poverty alleviation and, and economic uh, disparity. And working in a number of different areas, but is primarily strengthening work, uh, working in microfinance and strengthening um, the performance and the capacity of uh, entrepreneurs and small business owners who are working to, to um, improve their, their prospects, improve their families' prospects, as well as to, to improve the, um, the economies that, that they work in. And the reason I, you asked me to talk a little bit about the reason I, I came to Mita, and for a couple of reasons. One was a strong alignment with values and with faith. But also I think what's interesting is that when I was working as a consultant, you get an opportunity to work with a lot of different projects on a lot of different initiatives with a lot of different NGOs. And I think when doing that is you get a sense of those NGOs that, that are having a sustainable and long-term impact, that their work and that their philosophy is really working in the developing world, and which can be a challenge. And I know having worked with a number of different projects and initiatives and a number of different organizations and having worked as a consultant before joining MEDA full-time is that MEDA, I feel, has a, has a very strong, that their philosophy is, is, is very strong, 
and that their uh, their results and the impact that they've had over the years has has been you know nothing short of dramatic in many of the communities that they've worked in, and that's the reason I decided to to come over and to work with media because I think they approach it from a, a realistic uh, perspective, and that they they run a number of, of very good programs and projects that have you know strong sustainability and a strong impact, and also there's you know a very much a tie-in with the issue of of peace building and the issue of resolving of conflict. Because as we talked about that that quote, is that strife on an international or global context comes from economic and from rights disparity. And interesting, you may be familiar with the conflict transformation expert John Paul Lederick, but he talked a little bit after the 9-11 attacks that he said far better than some of the retaliatory um, actions that took place, as he said, would be to also look at investing financially in development, education, and a broad social agenda. And I wonder how our world would have looked if we were able to maybe balance out some of the responses that we did. Um, So that was uh, an officer um, come back to to his quote and to his philosophy, and I think the strong correlation and alignment with with what Mita does and with some of the challenges that that our world is facing right now, very much in a in a global perspective. So you wanted me to talk a little bit, I think, about um, about the work of, of Armietta Sen, and Armietta Sen won uh, recently won a few years ago the Nobel Peace Prize in Economics, and he did work looking at the impact that uh, economic systems and that the having you know, strong economic systems, having a strong rule of law, and, and having a, uh, strong institutions and, and systems in place can have. And in essence, what he was able to establish is that where you have um, economies and societies where you have strong rule of law, where you have economic freedom and liberty, is that your instances of poverty and your instances of, of, um, of starvation and of, and of all of the ills that we see in the developing world are considerably lessened. So we're approaching it from a marketplace perspective, a lot of what Mita does in terms of, of the work that they do. So that's um, so. I think the work of Sen, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, correlates strongly with that. Well, you know, when you mention about um, uh, him and the uh, impact on uh, behavior based on these uh, issues, um, it occurred to me to mention that the Circle of Canadians. Um, is working towards this May 21st uh, World Day mm-hmm. for Cultural Diversity, Dialogue, and Development. And it's going to be encouraging a colloquium around um, Canadian identity, the rule of law, and um, what is happening to the radicalization of youth. Now, that next generation issue, uh, maybe this could tie back into the uh, completing the discussion on the framework about Stella Tingtumi's work, is that how... When you take these ideas, uh, these concepts, these notions, that for it's almost like behavior modification, um, maybe we could see how does, you know, our roles and responsibilities, as I said, you know, we're fathers now, um, I'm a grandfather. Uh, for the next generation, like, how do, and the natives have a great expression from the Akwasasi I learned about everything you do and um, affects the seven generations that follow you, and you are a part of the seven generations that precede you, including your own. Any uh, way you want to tie in those ideas to that, uh, the next generations? I think that you're absolutely right. And when we look at our concerns around security and around terrorism issues, which are, are, are founded in, in reality. I mean, we, there's, uh, it's going to be the, you know, the challenge for our generation. It's going to be the challenge for our children's and our grandchildren's generation. But a, a large piece of, of, of that is where people have no options or where poverty um, uh, 
rules or we're hunger rules. And it's as you said about the, the food greens bank quote, and it's very true. Where hunger prevails, peace cannot. And that's that's absolutely true. So I think so. The looking at how do we resolve cultural conflict? I mean, a lot of it is in terms of bringing in, sort of ensuring that those economic systems are providing what people need to be successful. But I think that's also important for us to tie back into what we've been talking about um, is also understanding the, the different ways that people and the different cultures approach conflict. I mean, we want to talk a little bit about the, the Ting Talmi framework. And, and as we alluded to on yesterday's call, we're looking at, at uh, Ting Talmi basically took a look at cultures and, and how they approach conflict, and she broke it down into the, either what she called instrumental orientation or you have an expressive orientation. And by an instrumental orientation, she these refer to cultures that, such as in North America, Western Europe, United Kingdom, and these are cultures that are very individualistic, that tend to have a linear and an analytical and a logical approach to problem-solving into issues. And I think most importantly from the issue of conflict, these are cultures that see issues and conflicts separate from the people that are involved with them. Mm. Correspondingly, if we take a look at cultures that are more expressive-orientated, and these are cultures that, you know, many Asian cultures, many South American cultures, um, these are cultures, again, that have a strong collectivist orientation, that group harmony is extremely important to them. And they do not see people as being separate from, from conflict. And they see that really that, that the people relations that you are building are an integral part of resolving conflict. So how does that, so how does that play out in terms of, of how we approach conflict? Well, if you're from an instrumental orientation, from a typical North American, Western European background, um, you tend to be very action-oriented. You have a direct approach. You see conflict as a problem to be solved and to be solved fairly quickly. So you tend to move fairly quickly through it. The more expressive orientation tends to be much more non-confrontational, tends to be take an indirect and a very inactive approach towards resolving conflict. Um, and so that will result in situations or culture where you'll have a, where there's much, they'll take much longer time in terms of resolving conflict. They'll be more indirect because at the end of the day, what's most important in these types of cultures are preserving the relationships and allowing up, you've heard the expression, saving face of allowing the other side to save face, to allow the relationship to remain intact. Because in a culture that is collectivist, that has a strong emphasis on group harmony, that is the most important thing. Whereas, again, coming back to our more individualistic culture, North American, Western European culture, it's dealing more with the issues and the problems tend to take precedence over the actual dealing or actual uh, preservation of the relationship. Well, I think we're going to have to have a few more shows, Scott. This is too much fun and it's so <laughs> educational. But there's a few things that come to mind. I'm just going to sort of be sporadic about it. We got a few minutes before we uh, take a break, but uh, yeah, the last comment made me think of Sun Tzu's book, The Art of War, where he talked about giving people the golden bridge of retreat and the best form of uh, uh, conflict resolution is no conflict of all. So I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about the conflict prevention techniques. And also when you mentioned different cultures, my ancestry is um, Arabic. My father's from Lebanon. I was born here. My wife, Yuma was born in Lebanon. My grandfather, my mother's side was from Syria. I really have a, a great, there's a richness in that culture. And I'm, I'm wondering, again, objective, when you mention different cultural groups, how that culture is seen, say, in the academic field. And the, um, uh, you made me think also what Professor Mandel from Carleton, back when we were doing this work at the CICR, setting up the Canadian Institute for Conflict Resolution, he said after the Vietnam War, when the negotiators from Vietnam and the United States uh, rented apartments in uh, Paris, 
the the Americans rented them for two months and the Vietnamese for two years. And sort of that kind of different, uh, it's not just time mean, it's time that it takes to um, to do this. So my last my last thought, and I'm going to just give it back to you to sort of uh, pick up how you want to pick up on this, is um, I'd done a talk called Who Is My Neighbor? And our neighbor is, uh, of course, everyone. But I had a quote that uh, war is good business for the few, but peace is better business for the many. I can't think of a better economic development place than the Middle East where the world would flock for just for tourism. Everyone would do well. And that sort of cynical impact about the sort of the military industrial complex, if we can go back to President Eisenhower, that we have a world that's really uh, almost like a materialism up against spirituality and universal truth. So, I mean, I know that's a lot of things, but somehow I think they're interconnected, and I'll leave it to you to sort of sort of say how it comes to you. Okay, well, that's, that's very good. Thank you, and, and very insightful. Well, it's interesting. You, you brought up the, um, you know, the, the, the Middle East connection that you have culturally, and, and as I said uh, in yesterday's show, I'm actually next Monday on my way to Iran to teach, um, again, uh, to teach organizational behavior to, uh, at Sharif University. Uh, working with uh, with that culture there, and I've had an opportunity to work in in the Middle East a bit. So, uh, so your your question was where they would sit in terms of of the, the framework that we've taken a look at, and I would suggest to you, I think the Middle East is is probably more of a collectivist orientation culture, probably more expressive orientated. So they would approach culture from what we've just talked about: non confrontational, indirect, look at preserving um, relationships, and and that would be uh, you know so uh, so important to them in terms of, of resolving of, of conflict. Uh, in, in that in that cultural context well it is always in context and uh, uh, just before we go to our break um, uh, another uh, thought came to me and um, we're going to come back and listen to Scott Ruddock uh, manager of the uh, program uh, manager at meta meda.org call, uh, talking to us from Toronto on the topic when cultures collide how cultural identity leads to conflict and cultural awareness leads to peace and you're talking about rights and economics I remember that expression, war is not about who is right, but who is left. So <laughs> we'll come back and talk to you about a, listening to a vision statement from Scott Ruddick for what, how he sees things, how Mita sees things, and how we can all, like a ripple becoming a wave to wash away unresolved conflict from the shores of injustice. How can every listener be a ripple? Big Brothers Big Sisters is an organization that focuses on matching young kids with positive adult role models. The little brothers and little sisters in our programs are between the ages of 6 and 18. Our adult volunteers are over 18 and have been thoroughly screened. Through our programs, we strive to give little brothers and little sisters the chance to build a positive relationship with their big brother or big sister. Together, they're able to share similar interests and engage in fun activities. If you're interested in a role model for your child or you're interested in becoming a volunteer, please call Big Brothers Big Sisters Ottawa at 613-247-4776, extension 315 or 309, or visit our website at www.bbbso.ca. Looking to spice up your weekend? Let Chin Radio do it for you. Saturday mornings, we kick it all off in Holland for some music and comedy with Leo Hestick. From there, Karoi Dombi will escort you through Hungry before Fred Sherman and Denise Sealy spotlight the African diaspora of the world. 
Sunday's Irina Bell showcases the music and traditions of Ukraine. Shabnam Asadullahi will take you on a tour of a Persian paradise. Learn about the sensations of Somalia with Mari and Fada. And if you like Latin beats, Nivaldo Naranjo will salsa your socks off. Throw in our usual Italian, Arabic, and Haitian programs, and you have yourself a multicultural mix that will put the swing back in your weekend. Chin Radio Weekends, only on Ottawa's multicultural voice, Chin Radio 97.9. Make Chin your multicultural companion at home, at work, or in the car. Chin Radio. 97.9. Welcome back to our final segment here on Chin Radio 97.9 FM. We're heard worldwide over the internet on chinradio.org with uh, Scott in conversation with Scott Reddick uh, from uh, media, MEDA.org. Um, now, Scott. Um, I'm going to sort of divide this last, uh, you know, 10 or so minutes that we have into uh, like three parts. One is to um, uh, talk about, we talk about problems and we need to talk about resolution and sort of to maybe complete the conversation with uh, Ting Tome about um, the resolution of cross-cultural conflict. And maybe I'm going to ask you to tie that into um, and answer a question I know you like to pose to get people thinking is... um, how can people learn how to deal with other cultures? So maybe you can deal with those, and then I want to get into some vision statements. Absolutely. Well, you know, taking a look at, at the final you know, sort of step, I think, in, in taking a look at the framework. So we've got a sense of, of where cultural conflicts rise. They rise when we have clashes in communication styles and ethics and values and, and in how we relate to each other. So I think that you know, the next step is how do we resolve them? And so I would suggest to you, I think probably the, the, very fir- the very first important and most important step is having an understanding, is seeking to understand the perspective of, of the other side. Once we understand the underlying values of how the culture that we're working in, that perhaps we're in a bit of clash or conflict with, how they approach communication, how they approach decision-making, their orientations to time, all of the different uh, frameworks that we take a look at, that's going to give us, I think, a good understanding and opportunity about how our personal approach can actually run into, a, can actually cause some, some cultural conflicts that, that can arise. So I think that's most important. And Ting Tomi says, you know, if, if you are from, say, an instrumentative orientated side, you're, you're more logical, you're approaching things from a problem-solving perspective, stop and look at how your actions are potentially impacting the other side in terms of what's so important for them. That's in terms of building of relationships and of ensuring that people are able to save face. Conversely, if you're on the other side of the equation culturally, if you're more of an expressive orientation, more of a collectivist, group harmony perspective, again, seek to understand why the other side might be moving quicker than you might be more comfortable with, might be dealing more with facts and issues as opposed to dealing with the personal issues. Once we've developed that awareness and understanding of how other cultures what's important to them, what they value and, and where what their perspective is, then we're in a much better position and much better place to understand and to move forward with, with, uh, with alleviating the conflicts. You know, what springs to mind when you say those uh, really important, uh, I would call universal principles, is the best teacher is example. Mm-hmm. And um, we were talking um, at the break about the um, an incident about a year and a half ago in the States with a certain cultural group and how they responded to a tragedy. Maybe if uh, that works for you, you, maybe you can tie that story in. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, it's referring, and, and when I think about how should we approach conflict? How do we, you know, look at, at turning things around? I, I, I look at in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we talk about it and where I think we're all familiar with where the uh, crazed gunman broke into a, an Amish school, um, held some children hostage and ended up killing several of them before actually taking his own life before the police were able to intervene. And I look at how the Amish responded to that situation. I think first of that situation had happened in our own public school systems. The response we would have had probably tightened security, probably more of a police presence in schools, probably looked at, at looking at alleviating that the risk and responding that respect. The Amish had a much different perspective. Um, they have, of course, a, a strong uh, philosophy around forgiveness and of looking to, to build bridges and to build peace. And they actually, um, you know, they, they reached out to the widow of, of the man who had committed these atrocities. And he, they, they uh, set a scholarship for his children. Um, they sought to forgive him. They actually attended his funeral. And I think about their approach to taking what was an absolute tragedy oh. and turning it around and how they approached it. And how maybe if we looked in our own world, in our own life, to using that perspective and that philosophy, how much different our world would be if we were able to adopt that, uh, that approach and response to the, the tragedies and the conflicts that come up in our own lives. Well, you know, that is a, an incredible story. And, you know, some of these things take a long time, as you say, to understand and because we're in a spontaneous gratification society, mindset, upbringing. Um, so we have to, we, when we want to work with this, that we have to look to a longer view, um, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain maybe. But um, it's like when I had a bad tooth and I let it go for three years, I ended up with a root canal because I didn't, I didn't address it. So in terms of that long-term thinking and to prevent uh, the sort of root canals in our, in our cultures, um, maybe I could um, ask you now as we move into the last few minutes here to get into uh, a favorite part of mine, I'm sure many of the listeners, about a vision statement for the future. How do you see things, say, for yourself, your next generations? How does MEDA your, or the organization see things? What kind of plans do they have in mind? How can listeners uh, you know, connect or participate or understand that? And as a global citizen, Scott, you know, what kind of hope but I ask the people to, you know, remember the story of the Pandora's box and all the evils and uh, um, illnesses uh, came out and the last thing in the box was hope and how do you uh, establish hope for yourself and for others in a world where it seems so helpless? That's great. Well, first of all, I'd for your listeners who are interested in in, in getting involved, uh, I would encourage you encourage them to to go to our website, which is www.meda.org, and there are a number of, of ways that you can become involved in Meta. We have a program called Meta Trust, which is an online program where you can actually seek to donate money and actually pick the entrepreneur or the person who will receive this microfinance loan, and in turn you will see the the benefits that this personal uh, loan that you can give. And then as and and then as uh, it's repaid, you can take that money and, and develop, put it into your um, other development op- opportunities. That's a, a very grassroots and also a very direct connection because you'll actually be able to see the direct um, impact that your own microfinance loan is having on an entrepreneur or a small business owner in a part of the world. Mm. We also have something called Meet a Store, where you can go on and you can purchase uh, any number 
different number of products. We've got, uh, you can purchase a malaria net for someone in Tanzania. You can purchase a cedar toolkit for somebody in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You can help fund a home embroidery, and just for a few dollars, you know, 20 dollars $50, and sort of, and, and to alleviate a lot of that economic disparity and a lot of that poverty that, as we've been talking about, is a source of so much of the conflict and the strife in today's world. So I, so there, there, there are those opportunities um, to do on our website in a number of ways that people can, can, can give back. Mita has um, really sort of an underlying philosophy of, of, of sort of what we call three branding issues, and we, we seek to create hope for all people by offering economic uh, options and, help, and taking a shared risk with them. Uh, we seek to build relationships of trust, integrity, and hospitalities that promote peace. And we use the disciplines in the structure of business to create innovative and sustainable solutions to poverty. And so that has been Mita's approach. We've been doing it since 1953, uh, very successfully. We now estimate that we've, uh, uh, we've um, impact or we deal with over 2.2 million clients worldwide and working in, in a number of different uh, you know, countries, a number of different cultures, Amazing. seeking to do that. Yes, and... Uh, so that's so. I would encourage your, you know, your your listeners if they are interested to, to seek those opportunities. How large is the organization? Does it operate? Just you got in Toronto. You mentioned Winnipeg. How many staff does it have? Uh, well, our main office is, is actually based in Waterloo, so it's outside of Toronto. We also we have an office in in Lancaster, and we have an office in Winnipeg, and we have project offices and uh, a number of different locations around the world: Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Egypt, uh, Peru, Nicaragua. A number of different locations. Between full time staff and project staff, we number approximately two hundred um, staff members. Geez, that's that's amazing, and. Um, you made me think, of course, the Grameen Bank and the uh, the head of that bank who won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, is that the um, uh, is that the kind of thing that I think people would know that? How does that this, this microfinance fit into that common understanding of of uh, what this person that person did? Yeah, well, of course, the, the Grameen Bank was was the model for many of the successful microfinance projects that we see worldwide, and. Even in today's you know world where we've seen a, an emphasis on poverty alleviation, we still see where 90% of small business owners in the developing world have no access to credit, and they have no access to financing. And until you can develop that that credit base, until you can develop that financing, you can't take your business to the next level, and you can't reap the benefits. Your family can't reap the benefits. Your community can't reap the benefits. So one of our, our strong service lines here at Meta is providing a Microsoft finance services. We have an expertise in that. We provide both microfinance loans as well as expert assistance and consulting to other microfinance institutions. So that's one of the one of the areas we work in. But you're absolutely the Green Bank, of course, was the was established just how successful microfinance can be in poverty alleviation. I think I'm going to need to invite you to the show I've been working on with a person named Maria. She did a master's thesis on microfinance in the Gaza Strip. And in Jerusalem, one of the professors at one of the workshops said, uh, you know, until you create some um, economic uh, development, uh, what, are you, what are we doing about talking about conflict? Right, It fits right in. It's a very practical tool. I think we have a minute left here. So uh, um, if you want to have a, a one-minute wrap-up in terms of the hope in your heart in an otherwise seemingly helpless world. Well, I think the hope comes is that we're having these conversations. Yes. Uh, maybe 10 years ago, we wouldn't have. But I think now yes. people understand the impact they, that conflict has on their personal lives, their family lives, business lives, and also on a global perspective. And we are so much more of a global community than we ever were before. So we need to look for those peaceful resolutions. 
Well, that's wonderful. It certainly makes me feel good. And thanks to uh, Jeff and Chin Radio and Gary Michaels, who started this ADR series. And uh, you know what? You In a dark world, you help light up the light for the future. And it's like a plug in a socket, applying the principles to the practices. It's absolutely electrifying. Thank you very much, Scott Ruddock, a program manager at media, org, And thank you to the listeners. Thank you to Chin Radio. Thank you very much.